When I first went into ministry about 11 years ago, and, and just so you know, uh, I started as a youth pastor. I was a high school and college pastor at a, at a really big church in Louisville. My, it was my home church, and it never felt really big to me because I'd grown up there. You know how that goes. And, but it was a really, really big church, and so my job description was pretty lengthy. And I was in charge of both the high school ministry and the college ministry uh, in that church. And so two different things. And I had a lengthy job description. It would tell me, here's the things that I need to do and so on. It's like, give me that before I start. And you probably have had something along those lines. You, you start a job and, and you say, okay, what's expected? What, what am I supposed to do? What's my role? What am I not going to do? And so on. And inevitably, on every ministerial job description... There's a little asterisk or, or some kind of parenthetical phrase that says something to the effects that uh, your job description also includes other duties as assigned by the pastor. Now, maybe you've had a job description like that. Now, if you ever get one of those, just let me tell you, that is the most important line in the whole job description. It tells you nothing, but it tells you everything. Other duties as assigned by the pastor. I quickly realized that I could do all of the other things on that job description, and if I failed at the other duties as assigned, even if I were unaware of those other duties, then I had failed miserably. You know, our, our jobs as, as Christians are really the same way. The essence of my job as a youth pastor in that church was other duties as assigned. I had to make sure that I got that stuff. That was most important. That's, that's where I built trust and relationship and a reputation as somebody who will go the extra mile and all of those things. You know, as a believer in Jesus, we have not been saved just to enjoy the benefits of Christianity and God's grace for only ourselves. We exist and we have a new job description that includes the other duties as assigned by our Lord. And that's really the most important part of it all. But it's also the most overlooked. It's the most unappreciated and often the most undesirable parts of what we do as believers. It's the serving on the other duties as assigned. Those things seem to be below us in some ways. I'll have to tell you that when I was asked to do landscaping at the church, or I was asked to paint walls or move furniture, I just thought, don't, don't we pay somebody else to do that? That's not... Other duties as assigned by the pastor. It fell under that category. Those are the things that we might think are below us, and that's really the problem. Now, we're in a series today, beginning a new series called Serve. Just three weeks, just so you know, very short sermon series. But it, has, it, it fits into the overall picture of what, what I hope to accomplish this church year, from August uh, through next, next August that every sermon series will build off the one that we just ended, which was called Commit. The idea that this is what's required of us. This is what the commitment to our Lord Jesus is all about. And some elements that are included. And one of those is to serve. We see that. And maybe you've heard that terminology before. And I hope to make some sense of it to show you what does it mean to serve as a believer. Not just serve as if you're going to fulfill a role on a Sunday morning Sunday school class. But what in general does it mean to serve. And so the idea of serving is really an, an acting out of, of love and, uh, and compassion that comes from our relationship with Jesus and our love for other people. And, and, and we display a, a meeting of needs. We, we, uh, we go out of our way to help elevate people beyond where they are emotionally, relationally, even physically to help them meet their needs, spiritually and so on. And so the type of serving that we're going to see uh, in the next three weeks, I'll just tell you, it's not cool. 
it's not going to be glamorous. In fact, it'll, it'll really be the exact opposite, especially what we talk about today. And some of you are familiar with the passage of Scripture that we'll get to today. But it's not going to be cool. It's not going to be fashionable. It will never trend on social media. You will never be praised uh, in the general public for the kinds of things that we'll see that Jesus did today. It will be the kind of serving that you and I don't do naturally. We like to serve when we get attention for it. That's fine. Now, that's good. But it'll be the kind of serving that we don't normally do. So most of us are good at, and I think we probably even enjoy, and, and we, we, we really excel, and we really love to, to serve people who we think deserve it, who, who we think, well, they're going to pay it forward, or they're going to they're respond to it. But we're going to see today in John 13 is service that was given out of love for people who didn't deserve it, who didn't fully understand it, who couldn't pay it back, and who didn't even get it until well after it was already over. So what we're going to learn today from the words and the actions of Jesus is that in our service, in our life as Christians, nothing is below you. And I want you to have that in your mind. Nothing is below you. And there are four reasons that we'll see from John chapter 13. So turn there. If you're not already there, get to John chapter 13. You've got a handout there you can follow along. You've got a a little code you can scan for your smartphone or tablet, however it is that that you prefer this morning to access the Scripture. I would hope that you'll learn where things are in the Bible. It's important to know that, so you can reference those things later on. This morning, we'll we'll kind of work through this piece by piece, a few verses at a time, just so you know. Uh, On the back of that little sheet there, you'll see an outline. You can follow along with it. It'll be on the screen. Nothing is below you. That's the example that we'll get from Jesus. That's actually the words that he will say to us from the Scripture this morning, that nothing, there is absolutely nothing that you can be called upon to do as a believer in Christ to serve other people. There's nothing that's below you. Now, for some, I, know that, I, just, I say that over and over because for some, it hasn't sunk in yet. This is something we, we, we don't do naturally. I want you to get in your mind, nothing is below you. Four reasons. First of all, nothing is below you. And... And the reasons will be not if, whatever. But first of all, not if your life is anchored in the love of your Heavenly Father. Nothing is below you. Not not if your life is anchored in the love of your Heavenly Father. I want to show you this from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now, Now, here's what the Scripture says. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. He knows he's getting close to the time where he's going to be crucified, he'll be resurrected, and he will leave and go back to heaven and send his Holy Spirit. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the time of supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, and that he had come from God, and he was going back to God. Now the scene is this. Jesus is shifting from his earthly ministry to the cross. We're heading quickly to the cross. This is Passion Week, as it's known. This is right before the crucifixion, just hours before he's going to be crucified. He's going to share one last meal here with his disciples, and he fully knows that they have no idea what they're getting into. Uh, they, They fully expected that the Messiah, who had been prophesied in the Old Testament to come for the Jewish nation, would come to earth and take over. I mean, he would be triumphant in his rule on earth and would absolutely annihilate all of the enemies of the Jewish nation. That's what they fully expected. So they're thinking, that's what happens next. We're getting close. 
it's got to be real soon. We kind of see he's talking about some things that would lend us to believe there's a chapter that's about to open that's going to be different. And certainly it was going to be different, but not in the way that they expected. I wonder what they expected at this meal as they're sitting around and they sort of have this feeling that, okay, he's he's about to do something different. It's going to be unique. What they expected was anything but what he said and did. What what Jesus knew here was that he was in total control. If you see it there in verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. That's a symbol of power, to have it in his hands. He He knew everything and he could have done anything. He also knew his love was going to cost him because you see there in verse 2 that Judas had already determined he's going to betray Jesus. Jesus, you can tell here, the most powerful man in the room, knowing everything that's going to happen. And he knew what he was about to face. It says he had come from God. He's going back to God. He knows his hour has come. It's time for him to endure the cross. Now what he could have done is probably what most of us would have liked to have done at this moment. I mean, you picture yourself sitting there in that room. Twelve guys before you, and you know every single thing that's about to happen. When God had given him supernatural knowledge to know here's what's going to happen. He already knew that Judas was going to betray him. He already knew that Peter was going to deny him, and that everybody would run away and not want any part of him during the crucifixion. He already knew all of that. What would you do if those were your friends? And you've got, and, and, and you've got power. I mean, you, Jesus had it all in his hand. He could have done anything he wanted to do. That's the scene. He could have executed judgment on all of them right there, and we would have never known any more of the 12 disciples. Boom. He could have gotten up and said, Guys, I just listen, I love you, but you guys are a bunch of idiots. You don't get it. You don't have any clue what this is about. How stupid can you be? I mean, think about how we would respond to this. Guys, let me tell you, look, I, I, I know you say you love me, but guess what's about to happen? Judas, come out with it. You're going to turn me over to the authorities for some silver. You're going to regret it later on. Peter, look, what's going to happen is you're going to pretend like you've never even met me. The rest of you guys who think you're so great and loyal, you're going to be nowhere to be found. Gone. Let's just be honest, fellas. So what's going to happen? Some loyal disciples I have. Some rabbi I must be, you guys say. With, with that kind of power, we would expect him to do anything but what he did. But why didn't he? I believe it's the, it's the first principle. He knew nothing was below him because his life was wrapped up in the love of his heavenly father. Jesus knew that his hour had come and it was time for him to depart to the father... And in verse 3, he knew that he had come from God, and he was going back to God. Everything about Jesus was wrapped up in his identity of being the Son of God, who was loved by the Heavenly Father. Jesus could operate like he did. He could wash the disciples' feet, we'll see in just a second, because he didn't need to prove a thing. Nothing. He didn't need to prove he was the Messiah. He didn't need to prove they were wrong. He didn't need to prove anything to anybody He was secure in who he was in his heavenly father. I wonder how many of us are the same way. How many of us scurry around trying to prove everything about ourselves? You ever been caught in that trap? Prove we're good enough. Prove we're worthy of something. Prove that we're worthy of of appreciation or applause. We're trying to prove that we're good enough. Jesus just, he blew all that up. He said, I don't need to prove anything. 
My Heavenly Father loves me. I'm secure in my identity. My life is anchored in the love of my Heavenly Father. Nothing is below me. It doesn't matter what I'm called to do. God loves me, and that's enough for me. Now, that may sound cliche to you, and I certainly don't mean it to be cliche. But Jesus here knows that the Father has given everything into His hands, knows He's going back to God, and He's just wrapped up in the love of God. So He's able to do something completely unexpected. He's able to love them completely. It says, having loved His own who was in the world, He loved them to the end. To the very last moment, to the uttermost completion, He loved them because He simply was wrapped up in the love of His Heavenly Father. So He had assurance. He had security. And He had courage to do the unexpected because His identity wasn't wrapped up in what they did but who he was in his heavenly father. He he interrupts the ceremonies here, as we'll see, to do something for them they would never forget. He gives them a symbol of his spiritual cleansing and a standard of our humble service. And he loves them in such a way that they would recognize that this guy's a little different. Nothing is below you, not if if your life is anchored in the love of of your Heavenly Father. Secondly, not if you understand grace. Nothing's below you. Now, I say all this with the premise today and the understanding that we probably have some things that we feel are below us, and I'll get to that a little bit later. But if we understand God's grace, then we'll recognize there's nothing. There's nothing that I could be called or expected or try to do for someone that's below me because I understand God's grace. Verses 4 and 5 say this. So after all, he's got all this knowledge. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. Now, you understand when John wrote this, this was meant to be read aloud in these different churches. This was the gospel of Jesus Christ, meant to be read to people. And, and it actually had a more present tense kind of feel to it. So what it would say is now he gets up from supper. He's telling the story. John's into it. And he lays aside his robe. And he, and he takes a towel and he ties it around himself. I mean, you can almost see they're, they're into the story. And next, he pours water into a basin, almost as if, are you serious? This is what's happening. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel that he had tied around him. That's sort of the intensity. That's the way that this was meant to be understood, to draw them into the story. I love the first word of verse 4, so. To me, that's the most powerful word in, in the whole passage that we're looking at today. Jesus knew everything, could have done anything, so, as a result, he takes the form of a slave. Because he could have done anything he wanted, he showed them grace, which is what they needed most. Grace is giving to people what they need, even when they don't deserve it. Jesus here, the author of grace, understood that they were desperate for it, and so, because he can, he gives it to them. And he pursues this downward mobility. You know, we're in a culture of upwardly mobile people. We all want to advance. Jesus here, at the pinnacle of his earthly power, decides to pursue downward mobility. It says he gets up. At what point did they start to wonder, what is he doing? Maybe they thought he was going to get up to give some sort of motivational speech and say, guys, it's time to fight and let's take over the Roman government. Obviously, that's not what he did. 
He, he got up and he laid aside his robe. He, he wore an outer garment. That's in order to have his hands free. These hands that have been given all power, guess what? Now they're going to be used in the most powerful example of humble service we've ever seen. He's freed up now to use his arms and to use that power. And he takes in his hand, the power there that he has in his hand, he takes a towel, wraps it around himself, taking on the dress of a slave, pours water into a bowl, begins to wash their feet. I mean, imagine the shock. It's hard for us really to put ourselves in this situation because we're not ancient Jewish people. We don't walk around on dusty, dirty roads in sandals all day long, and our feet don't get dirty and grimy like they did back then. And we don't expect that somebody below us is going to perform this service for us when we walk into a home. And we might kick off our shoes or something. We don't even expect that the host is going to clean our shoes for us. We expect we ought to take them off so we don't mess up their carpet. You know, that's what we do. This is totally foreign to us. So imagine, if you will, their shock at someone who is in a superior role begins to wash the feet of people who are inferior in role to him. This was unheard of. Absolutely unprecedented. In fact, there's no recording of anywhere in ancient history of a leader like this washing the feet of people below him other than what we have in the New Testament. There's no other... No other Jesus did it and nobody else did. They're so shocked because this was not a job for those in superior roles. In fact, this was a job that they wouldn't even let Jewish slaves do. It would have to be Gentile slaves. People who were non-Jewish and were slaves. They're the people that were stuck with this job. Now, their reluctance to wash each other's feet, you can imagine they walk into the room here and they're going to share a meal. Nobody's there to wash each other's feet. What's going on? They're not going to do it for each other. That wouldn't have been culturally acceptable. They said, no, that's not what we do. We don't wash, peers don't wash each other's feet. And so their shock was amazing when Jesus began to do this for them. Because not only was he doing something that, that, that was, that was ashamed, shaming to them because they wouldn't do it for each other, but he also was upsetting their, their cultural expectation. Jesus, this is new. You're not supposed to do this. Ever had Jesus just mess up your life? I, I, honestly, it would be my prayer for you. I mean, he just turned you upside down. I mean, you want to see some incredible things happen in your life, just, Lord... Break me down just a little bit. The way that I think things are always supposed to go, that's what Jesus was doing. They had spent time, if you know their story, fighting over who's the greatest. Oh, it's me. I'm the greatest disciple. I'll follow him to the death. I'm the greatest disciple because I'm the best speaker, Peter would say. And here he is, proving who's the greatest by doing something none of them were willing to do. They needed grace and didn't even know it. There are people in your life who need you to be the channel of God's grace and they don't even know it. If you understand what God has done for you through the grace offered to you by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only means to meet your greatest need, which is forgiveness of your sin, your greatest need is not to feel better about yourself or to get out of your depression. Your greatest need is not to have more money or to go on a better vacation or live in a bigger home or drive a nicer car. Your greatest need in life is to be forgiven and you may not even know it because you are a sinner lost and bound for hell apart from Jesus Christ and only He can cleanse your sin. They needed grace. So do people in our lives and we need to meet that need by being a channel 
of God's grace. When we understand what he's done for us, we say, nothing is below me. I don't care what I have to do for somebody else. I don't care what they've done to me. I don't care what's going to happen or not going to happen. God has rescued me out of my sin. When I didn't care about him, nothing's below me. If you understand grace, what people truly need, what God has done in your life, then nothing, no one, is below you. Nothing is below you, thirdly, not, not if you see people the way Jesus sees people. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will know. You'll never wash my feet, ever, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet because he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said you are not all clean. Jesus saw them as in need of cleansing. He saw their deep need to be forgiven of sin and to be washed clean. That's how he saw people. You realize when Jesus came up on a crowd, he didn't say, oh, good grief. Leave me alone. Tired. I sleep on rocks for crying out loud. I eat nothing. Are you kidding? Just give me 10 minutes. I just want to take a nap. And everywhere I go, people follow me around. You know, it's like Forrest Gump and all the people running with him. I mean, that's the way it is. I mean, oh, you know what? Jesus walks up on a crowd, and you know what the scripture tells us? He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know about you, but there's certain people who just annoy me. I'm not going to stop on anybody's eyes here, so you don't think it's you. But that's true. I mean, we just, boy, leave me alone. We don't see that with Jesus. The Pharisees are the only people, and they, they consider themselves religious. They can get out of here. He says, the crowds, the people who truly need he saw them as people who needed him. He saw his disciples as guys who needed to be cleansed by Jesus. And he makes the point with Peter, look, you've already, I've already cleansed you because you've come to me by faith. But this daily cleansing he's symbolizing also of this idea of washing feet and being cleansed each day from sin. That's what Jesus does for us. I, I, I wonder, do we fully understand how Jesus sees people? And do, do, does the way that we see people line up with him? That's hard. Some people we just don't like. Some people we, we, we really just want to avoid. But I wonder if you'd pray this morning, Lord, give me your eyes to see people the way you see them. Even that guy. <laughs> I mean, even her, Lord. <laughs> I... My, my heart right now doesn't totally want to, but Lord, I, I just I want you to break me. I want you to help me see people the way that you see them. Please. Jesus saw people as sinners in need of forgiveness. And he's able to wash their feet, even the feet of an enemy. We have no indication here that he didn't wash Judas's feet. And I wonder how we see people. If you were to complete the sentence, people to me are, <laughs> are what? Too much. An annoyance. On my last nerve every day, Jesus would say, people to me are folks in need of salvation. 
I wonder how much it would blow your mind to begin to see people as God sees them. Even people that are your enemies, deep, lost in sin. Sin that's repulsive to you. How would it be to see them as Jesus sees them? Nothing is below you if you see people that way. And fourthly, nothing is below you. Not if you strive to live as Jesus lived. Do you understand that's the whole idea? Is to become like Jesus. God says, my will for you is to be conformed to the image of my son. That's what we're to be about as believers in Jesus. Not just taking up space on a Sunday morning. Not just eating fellowship meals. Not just those things. All part of it. But our ultimate, the ultimate will of God for our lives individually and collectively is that we be conformed to be like Jesus. Period. And so if we are going to live out what we say we believe, and that is, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, then we must strive each and every day to live as Jesus lived. This is far beyond, I will tell you, a what would Jesus do bracelet or t-shirt. Far beyond that. This is a daily surrender, dying to myself to say, Lord, you make me like you. He says in verse 12, when Jesus had washed their feet... And put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. That's exactly who I am. You better make sure that you understand who I am. And he says, because that carries so much greater power, he says, if I'm willing to do this for you, there is nothing you should be unwilling to do for anybody else. Nothing, he says. Nothing is below you. This is the emphatic exclamation point on the whole episode. Jesus explains it to him and says, you know what? If I'm willing to do this for you, you don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. You can't pay me back. You don't even understand what I'm doing. And if I'm willing to do those things for you, there is nothing that's below you. He says, I've given you an example, this pattern of humility. Now, I will say that there are certain faith traditions who hold foot washing as a sort of a sacrament or an ordinance in the church. We, we don't have anywhere else in the New Testament that would command us to do something like that as some sort of consistent ritual in the church. The idea that Jesus is giving here, as best I can understand it, is not that we should go and do exactly what he did, and that is to bring people and sit down and wash their feet off. Now, if that's some way that you can serve somebody, then by all means do that. If they walk on dusty roads and they've got dirty feet, and that's a great way to help them, and I don't mean to be cynical, but by all means do that. But the overall principle is not go and wash somebody's feet as some ritual to score points with God. The idea is that nothing is below you. Nothing. Nothing that we can be called upon to do is below us. He says, if I'm your teacher and I'm your Lord and I do these things, then you should do them also. He says, no messenger has the right to decline to do something that the person who sent him would be willing to do. No, no, no slave would say, no, I'm not going to do that when the master has already done it. And he says, as you follow me, there's nothing that you should be unwilling to do. 
The things we do for others must be done in the same way that Jesus did them. Do you realize he never makes an announcement here? Guys, I'm getting up. I'm going to tie this towel around me. Pay attention. Somebody live tweet this so everybody in the world knows what's going on. Take some put some pictures, put it on Instagram, and look at me and my towel. And then I'm going to get down on my knees here, and I'm going to wash your feet as you sort of look at each other in shock, wondering, why is he doing this? This doesn't make any sense. Jesus never made any grand announcement. He never drew attention to himself. In fact, do you realize that the way that they were positioned at this table would be to lay down with their heads toward the center, leaning on a left arm, eating with the right, and the slave would go around behind them, completely ignored, and wash their feet. That's the position Jesus took. It used to really bother me when I was a youth pastor, and we had a particular intern at the time who was a college student, and we would be on a trip or doing some kind of service, and, and he would go around and call attention to people. Here's a humble servant right here. Look at this. I just thought, well, doesn't that defeat the purpose? No longer humble service if you're drawing attention to it. We must do our, our, our service to people. We must love people, serve them in the same way that Jesus did. Not announced, and certainly not as a sign of weakness. You realize Jesus was not weak here? He has everything in his hands. He didn't serve them because he was weak or because he needed their approval or their applause or anything like that. He served them because he could. And he served them because it was right. And because he could give them what they needed. Through all of this, what's, what's God saying? And the overall principle, of course, is the title of the sermon, that because Jesus has done it, nothing is below us. Nothing was below Him. Not doing something so socially unacceptable as washing people's feet, and certainly not doing something, this was not below Him, to die for our sins. And because we are His disciples, nothing is below us either. Not if we're anchored in the love of Jesus, the love of our Heavenly Father. Not if we understand grace. Not if... We see people the way Jesus did, and not if we strive to live like Him. The other duties as assigned, if you will, as Christians are not optional. This is not something we can pick and choose and say, well, that, that's, that's super spiritual. I, I just want to kind of exist. Look, I, you know, I don't want to get involved in all that stuff. It's not optional. I'm not even telling you to do something else here at Elm Grove. I'm just saying that a life like this is not optional. This is, this is the pattern that Jesus gave us. If we are to be conformed in His image, this is the way we live. Period. And I'll tell you this, the world's desperate for it. The people you're around, every they are desperate for this. They don't even know it. But this is so incredibly unique, so incredibly patterning our lives after Jesus, they are desperate for it. It'll be like water in the desert for them. To see somebody do these kinds of things, to serve them, to have nothing be below you. So how do I get there? Let me just let me give you a little thing to do this week. Maybe you've already guessed it. You've already filled in the blank. Here's your service this week. Here's how you can serve. It's a question. What is the most unexpected thing that you can do for someone who doesn't deserve it? That's what Jesus did. And he caught them all off guard. And none of them deserved it. What's the most unexpected thing that you can do? He gave the most unexpected thing to the most undeserving people. And the question's for us. I mean, are we willing to do the same kinds of things 
for people who cannot, will not, and won't ever even think about paying us back. I mean, are we willing to extend forgiveness to that person who's hurt us? They don't deserve it, and it's unexpected. You're justified in holding on to that bitterness, at least according to the world's standard. Will you extend patience to the person who's going to keep trying your patience every day? Will you do what other people think is below them? Will you live out the gospel to do the things that Jesus did? You can apply this in a variety of roles. You've got maybe a parent-child relationship. Parents, what is the most unexpected thing that you can do this week for your kids, even when they don't deserve it? I'm not talking about going and buying them something. That may be included. But what is it? What have you not been given? Maybe you've got an adversarial relationship and they're the one causing it. What's unexpected? What's the grace that you can give them when they don't deserve it? Now, now young people, let me just tell you, your parents are human too. I know they seem really not human sometimes, like they're not from this planet. And I realize that. And sometimes I'm that way. I'm really not from here, you know. But young people, what's the most unexpected thing you could do for your parents when they haven't deserved it? Maybe they've made your life miserable. Maybe there's a husband and wife relationship. And nobody knows, but it's not good. And you're smiling this morning, but (laughs) you get in that car. You'll smile at the restaurant because you're not about to stay over here and sit there and try to endure each other. What's the most unexpected thing you could do for your spouse this week when they don't deserve it? Listen. You say, well, they're not going to do anything. No, 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 they're not. I mean, the disciples didn't even understand what Jesus was doing. They didn't get it. Peter said, no, 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 indignantly, you are not going to do this for me. (laughs) Jesus said, oh, yeah, yeah. In a working relationship, if you're the boss, is there any way you could figure out how the stuff that you're doing is affecting your employees and maybe you do something unexpected? They don't deserve it. I mean, that guy's a bum. He's 15 minutes late everywhere he goes. What's something unexpected you could do for somebody who doesn't deserve it? You know, it's easy and it's fun to help people who deserve it. I mean, boy, we just, boy, it's such a good feeling. You help somebody and they're so grateful and they, they deserved it. I mean, they, who, I'd love to serve people like that. I mean, these disciples would have gladly washed Jesus' feet. He's worthy of it. But what about the people who don't deserve anything from you? The people you've gone out of your way for over and over and over and over and over and they keep throwing it back in your face. What about the people you're not obligated to do a single thing for who will likely never even fully understand or appreciate what you're doing for them? That's who you need to serve this week. Why? Because that's what Jesus did in John chapter 13. You can do anything else. You'd be justified in doing anything else. But if you want to be like Jesus, what's the most unexpected thing you could do for somebody who doesn't deserve it? And when you think about what God has done for us, the most unexpected thing that He could have ever done for undeserving people like us is come Himself in the form of Jesus Christ and hang on a cross and die for our sins. 
And so this isn't about some ought to or some rule. This is simply about recognizing this is what God has done in Jesus Christ for us. And nothing's below me. That's how I love people. That's just how God has loved me in Jesus. I don't know what your prayer needs to be this morning or what your commitment or what you need to do specifically. Maybe God is talking to you. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, that's what I'll do. I don't even know where to start, but God, you're going to help me. Or maybe you say, I got that person in my mind right now. I don't even like them, but I'm going to try to do something unexpected when they don't deserve it. Would, would you spend a, a moment or two with God and just say, Lord, you show me what I need to do? Let's pray together. told you it wouldn't be cool it wouldn't be fashionable and it's not going to come naturally and so if you're making a commitment this morning to live like Jesus you're not going to do it on your own it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you and maybe you've never invited Jesus into your life to totally take over And maybe this morning, for the first time, you realize what He's done for you. Someone so undeserving, someone such a sinner as yourself. And you'd say, Lord, you love me. <laughs> you want to wash me. And you'd say, Lord, I give myself to you in faith. And Lord, I'll live like you through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, show me. What's your commitment this morning? How can you serve others? God, help us change us, break our hearts, make us like Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.